Hello and welcome to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Wednesday, February 14th, 2024. I'm your reader, Janet Griffith. Starting on today's front page, main headline reads, CR selects David Dostal as new chief of police. Community relationships, frontline experience, push Dostal to the top. By Marissa Payne. Captain David Dostal's frontline boots-on-the-ground policing experience from his earlier days as a bike patrol officer to rising through the Cedar Rapids Police Department ranks over more than 30 years, pushed him to the top to become the city's next police chief. Several members of the community and the Cedar Rapids City Council, which unanimously approved Dostal's appointment as police chief Tuesday, favored the homegrown candidate after a nationwide search. Councilmember Scott Olson was absent. As a candidate with extensive relationships throughout Cedar Rapids, City Manager Jeff Pomerantz said he selected Dostal to build upon a framework of community engagement, transparency, and collaboration within the department and beyond. Starting February 28th, Dostal, 56, will assume his role at the helm of the department, which employs 270 full-time equivalents. His salary will be $174,953.46. Dostal succeeds Wade German, who retired last April after aging out of his certification when he turned 66 years old and signing a severance agreement with the city. Deputy Chief Tom Jonker has filled the role on an interim basis. It's all about partnerships, Dostal said. It's about conversations. It's understanding and learning about each other. I'm all about being in partnership with the community. I firmly believe that that develops trust and it's a two-way street. We learn from the community, the community learns from us, and that is the biggest way I see of developing a partnership that will ensure a safe and secure community. Before the council voted to make Dostal's appointment official, council member Marty Hager said about a month ago, Pomerantz told him, there's a name that's kind of rising to the top and we've got to go through a process. Hager said he responded, absolutely, we have to stick through the process because you never know who may rise in every process. But I will tell you, Jeff, that if it is David Dostal, we win. In media interviews after the meeting, asked about Hager's remarks and whether he knew he wanted to hire Dostal before the February 7th interviews with all four finalists, Pomerantz said he did not. His conversation with Hager could have been before, would have been before the Civil Service Commission on January 30th narrowed a pool of 17 applicants to those four. The other three were Jennifer Burkhofer, 44, a lieutenant at the Douglas County Sheriff's Office in Omaha, Jeff Coday, 49, a captain at the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department in Nevada. Tom Whitten, chief deputy for the El Paso County Sheriff's Office in Texas. There just was a number of people who thought he'd be an excellent person for the police chief position, Pomerantz said. He did mention that, and yet what was most critical was the competitive process. The city spent $62,650 for a Virginia-based International Association of Chiefs of Police to assist with the national search. Members of the city's executive team, a selection committee, including a member of the Citizen Review Board, as laid out in city code, a six-person focus group from the police department, and a community group committed to strengthening community police relationships, participated in the February 7th interviews. There was a possibility Pomerantz would do additional site visits to visit external candidates' departments, but he did none. Ultimately, Pomerantz said the community's support of Dostal and his experience swayed him toward the internal candidate. He received at least 30 letters largely favoring Dostal as the next chief. Of the 31 letters provided to the Gazette through an open records request, only one favored Coday for the role. The care that David has for Cedar Rapids, the knowledge of Cedar Rapids, the experience he's had with the citizens and the officers 
really made him stand out in my mind as an outstanding candidate, Pomerantz said. Councilmember Dale Todd, chair of the Council's Public Safety and Youth Services Committee, said he believes the process was pure and without any undue influence from council members. It's a question of do you bring somebody in to build a department or do you bring somebody who's already engaged in the department and build on the framework here, Todd said. In this case, I think you build on the framework. Mayor Tiffany O'Donnell said Dostal, being from Cedar Rapids, wasn't enough to push him to the top of the candidate pool. Stories of Dostal when no one was watching were compelling recommendations, she said. This is a chief who had to compete with the best, and it was important for us as city leaders to make sure that we had a pool of the best for our city. Bills offer more pay training for nursing home staff. Senate Dems call for more inspections, care alternatives by Tom Barton. Iowa House Republicans and Iowa Senate Democrats introduced their respective legislative proposals Tuesday to ensure safety, support, and accountability in nursing homes and long-term care facilities. Iowa is responsible for 3% of the nation's nursing facility citations and 4.1% of the nation's immediate jeopardy and life-threatening situations, despite accounting for just 1% of the nation's 65-plus population, according to federal data. A report by the U.S. Senate Special Committee on Aging suggests Iowa has one of the nation's worst ratios of nursing home inspectors to care facilities and that the state's use of private contractors to inspect homes is extraordinarily costly to taxpayers. Under a bill advancing in the House, Iowa's nursing home staff would undergo new training. House Study Bill 691 would require the Department of Inspections, Appeals, and Licensing to conduct training twice a year with inspectors and nursing homes, to cover at least three of the 10 most frequent complaints found a year earlier. The department also would be tasked with collecting data and identifying patterns of complaints against nursing facilities. We want to make sure that both entities are on the same page, the nursing homes and the inspectors, Representative Ann Meyer, Republican of Fort Dodge, who chairs the House Health and Human Services Committee, told reporters. So we want to identify the top 10 complaints in the Iowa nursing homes, and we want to make sure that those are addressed in training. Senate Democrats released a package of legislation hoping to spur conversations with Republicans and find common ground to improve the care and oversight of Iowa's nursing homes and protect seniors from neglect and abuse. The bills would impose more frequent inspections and stricter penalties, study alternatives to institutional long-term care, raise the minimum wage for nursing home workers, and increase the monthly allowance for long-term care residents on Medicaid. Iowa's journalists have put a spotlight on dozens of tragic situations, and the legislature can no longer ignore this, Senator Claire Selsey, Democrat of West Des Moines, told reporters. These are stories that have gripped everyone in the state of Iowa who has read them and sickened them, to be honest with you. The system that we have is clearly broken, and it's time to fix it. She added, there are many good facilities, and we applaud them for the hard work they do every day, but there are simply some facilities and some situations that just beyond the pale that we need to fix. Nursing home officials have said challenges, including worker staff turnover rates and shortages fueled by low wages, have impacted patient care. Industry officials say they also have felt financial strain from low Medicaid reimbursement that is not kept up with rising costs, making it harder to offer competitive wages. According to state data, the average pay for direct care workers in nursing homes was $13 an hour in 2022. Over two dozen of Iowa's more than 400 nursing homes have closed since last June, with nursing home officials citing difficulties recruiting and keeping staff. Through our research and conversations, it quickly became clear that inadequate direct care staffing levels often led to resident harm documented in most tragic cases, Selsey said. 
House Republicans say they're concerned that agencies supplying temporary employees to nursing homes are exploiting recently boosted state funding for nursing home care. HF 2199 would cap what temporary staffing agencies can charge Iowa's medical providers for nursing services. The bill is intended to provide financial relief for nursing homes, hospitals, and other health care facilities that have heavily relied on contract nurses and contract nursing agencies, where the pay is substantially higher to address workforce shortages. Republicans who are in the majority in both chambers are not expected to take up Democrats' bills in committee before a Friday legislative deadline, but the proposals could be introduced during Senate debate and worked into spending bills later in the session. Brent Willett, chief executive officer of the Iowa Healthcare Association, which represents long-term care facilities, said the group is committed to working with lawmakers to ensure long-term health care facilities are equipped to provide high-quality care. Delivering quality care is a continuous process, and there is always more we can do, which is why IHCA continues to advocate for common-sense policies designed to attract, train, equip, and retain more permanent direct care workers in Iowa communities to meet the growing demand for long-term care services and supports, Willett said in a statement. Ag Census, five things to know about Iowa. Ag experts optimistic about increase shown in young farmers. By Brittany Miller and Aaron Jordan. Iowa's agriculture industry swells in profits according to the latest federal data with more young producers, larger hog confinements, and doubling sales of organics emerging in 2022 data. The U.S. Department of Agriculture Census of Agriculture comes around every five years to keep tabs on farm demographics, farm production, crop costs, and more across the nation. The census is just a snapshot of Iowa's agriculture at a certain point in time, so following long-term trends is key, experts told the Gazette. Some of the data also is self-reported. The Gazette sifted through dozens of data tables and interviewed several experts to uncover interesting developments in Iowa's agricultural industry. Here are the top five insights. Younger farmers growing. The age of the average farmer has seemed to stabilize in Iowa, said Iowa State University agricultural economist Chad Hart. Between 2017 and 2022, the average producer age in the state grew only two-tenths of a point to 57.6 years old. Every age group of producers under 45 saw spikes in their numbers. Notably, Iowa sported a 19.4% surge among producers under 35, following only New Jersey and Rhode Island nationwide. That tells us that this worry about farm transition is already occurring, Hart said, and we are seeing some of this land transition from the older generation to the younger ones. However, the older generation still owns two-thirds of Iowa land, said Wendong Zhang, an assistant professor of economics at Cornell University, who used to lead the Iowa Land Value Survey and the Iowa Farmland Ownership and Tenure Survey. Farm Incomes and Expenses Rising The estimated market value of the average farm in Iowa was about $3.2 million in 2022, the highest it has ever been, according to USDA census data. The market value of Iowa's sold agricultural products also peaked at about $44 billion, or about $506,000 per average Iowa farm. Corn sales jumped from $8.5 billion in 2017 to $15.8 billion in 2022. Poultry and egg values increased by a third in that time frame. Farm expenses spiked in Iowa, too, surging 34% from 2017 to surpass $31 billion in 2022. Feed and fertilizer prices rose 44% and 72% respectively, reflecting challenges producers have reported in eastern Iowa. Fuel and labor costs swelled as well. Between their profits and costs, Iowa producers as a whole still made out well in 2022, 
their net cash farm income of operations and producers, which include government payments, both nearly doubled from 2017. Growing conservation efforts. Iowa farmers reported growing 1.2 million acres of cover crops in 2022, a more than twofold increase in 10 years. It's a big bump for the off-season crops that reduce erosion and fertilizer runoff, but it's still less than 5% of the state's total farmed acres. We've got to celebrate we're going in the right direction, said Schaefer Ridgeway, a district conservationist with the Natural Resources Conservation Service in Blackhawk County. But if Iowa and other Midwest states are going to meet goals for reducing nutrient runoff going into the Mississippi River, we've got to go at a faster pace. Farm consolidation continues. The average U.S. farm grew by larger by 22 acres between 2017 and 2022. The average Iowa farm, however, shrank by 10 acres, a small change, but one that defies years of farm consolidation. The typical Iowa farm was 20 acres smaller in 2002 than it was in 2022. Hart blames it on the disappearing middle. Generally, Iowa has seen an increase in the number of small farms between 10 and 500 acres, along with farms larger than 2,000 acres, but the number of mid-sized farms, those between 500 and 2,000 acres, shrank. Those mid-sized farms, they're transitioning one way or the other, Hart said. More hogs, larger hog farms. The number of hogs in Iowa increased 3.3 million between 2012 and 2022, or about 16.4%. Yet Iowa has about 1,000 fewer hog farms than 10 years ago, the census reported. This means the average number of hogs per farm in Iowa in 2022 was nearly 40% higher than in 2012. Iowa produces more hogs than any other state, and certain parts of Iowa have farm upon farm upon farm, said Amanda Starbuck, research director for Food and Water Watch, an anti-corporate farming advocacy group. That becomes a big issue with water quality and soil quality. They produce more manure than can, than can be sustainably recycled on nearby land. Bill that would criminalize unsheltered homelessness stalls in Senate by Tom Barton. State lawmakers Tuesday considered but ultimately tabled legislation passed in other Republican-led states that would criminalize homelessness and redirect state funding toward state-sanctioned encampments. Senate Study Bill 3175 mirrors legislation being pushed in states across the country by the Cicero Institute, an Austin-based conservative think tank. Lawmakers in Oklahoma, Arizona, Georgia, Missouri, and Wisconsin have advanced or are considering similar proposals. The bill, which failed to meet a legislative deadline to pass out of committee, would have diverted state and federal funding from permanent supportive housing toward designated camping areas that provide mental health and substance use disorder services, bathrooms, security, and other resources for people experiencing homelessness. Unsheltered homelessness, those sleeping on the streets, in parks, in cars, or in abandoned buildings, has risen sharply over the last 10 years and at a faster rate than homelessness overall. Since July 2017, the number of people sleeping in places not meant for habitation has quadrupled in Lynn County, according to summer point-in-time counts conducted by volunteers from Willis Dady Homeless Services and Waypoint in Cedar Rapids. In July 2023, the count was 123. The number started to sharply increase after, 20, after 2019. Johnson County saw a marked increase in the count of those sleeping outdoors for the first time in several years through its annual winter counts. After several years of a relatively stable winter count, shelter house volunteers in Iowa City found 23 people living outdoors last month, an increase from 13 last year. Winter point-in-time counts when emergency shelters are utilized more heavily to avoid bitter temperatures tend to be lower than summer counts. As homeless encampments have become increasingly visible in recent years, 
States and cities have turned to solutions such as rental assistance, temporary shelters, and outreach teams to connect homeless people with mental health and substance abuse services. A number of cities, including Portland, Oregon, Austin, Texas, and Denver, Colorado, have turned to the idea of sanctioned encampments or legalized campsites, designated areas where unhoused individuals can live outside. The areas come with varying degrees of public services, such as bathrooms, power outlets, medical care, and on-site case management. Marion Mann Charged with Domestic Abuse After Four-Hour Standoff with Police by Emily Anderson A Marion man was arrested after a four-hour standoff with police last weekend on charges that he threatened police with a firearm when they came to his apartment to investigate a domestic dispute. Nicholas Michael Childress, 22, is charged with interference with official acts and two counts of assault on persons in certain occupations, all felonies, and two counts of first-degree harassment and domestic abuse assault. A judge ordered a $20,000 cash-only bail for Childress and a no-contact order to protect the woman on Saturday. He was formally charged Monday during an initial appearance. Officers responded to multiple 911 calls about 8.30 a.m., 8.31 a.m. on Saturday, reporting that a man was making threats against a woman at an apartment in the 1400 block of 44th Street in Marion, according to a search warrant. Uh, officers set up a perimeter around the apartment building, but when officers knocked on the door and announced themselves as law enforcement, they heard the sound of a shotgun rack and a man said, keep knocking and see what happens. The 911 callers reported Childress had been threatening to kill a woman. One neighbor recorded Childress saying her death will be quick and her body will be nothing but mulch, according to the warrant request. Childress did not come to the door when police asked, and police later confirmed he had been holding a loaded shotgun while they were at the door, according to a criminal complaint. The woman told police she had slapped him, and he became fixated on the slap, hitting her back and threatening to kill her if she ever hit him again, the complaint states. Other people living in the building were individually contacted by police and asked to voluntarily evacuate, while the Marion Police Department Special Response Team worked to de-escalate the situation, according to a news release from the police department. Police attempted to contact Childress and the woman through various means, but as of the time the search warrant request was filed, about 12.30 p.m., they had received no response. Police learned that the woman had texted her mother, indicating she was in the apartment, according to the warrant request. The warrant was granted, and police were able to get the woman safely out of the apartment and take Childress into custody by 1 p.m. Police searched the apartment and found multiple firearms and several containers of ammunition. If convicted, Childress faces up to 15 years on the felonies. CR Community Solar Garden begins operations. 4.5 Megawatt Garden is Alliance's largest operational solar project so far in Iowa by Brittany Miller. Alliant Energy's Cedar Rapids Community Solar Garden is now operational, the company announced Tuesday. At full capacity, the 18,000 solar blocks can generate 4.5 megawatts of energy or enough, power, or enough to power about 3,600 homes, Alliant has said. It's the company's largest operational solar project so far in Iowa and its second operational community solar garden. More than 300 customers have subscribed to the 250-watt solar blocks, which generate an average of 541 kilowatt hours annually. Anchor tenants include the City of Cedar Rapids, First Interstate Bank, Transamerica, and Aegon Asset Management. An additional $250,000 worth of blocks were allotted to the Cedar Valley Habitat for Humanity, which should receive $500,000 plus in bill credits over the life of the project. 
residential customers make up most, if not all, of the remaining subscribers. Subscribed customers will receive monthly energy credits on their electric bills beginning at 5.59 cents per kilowatt hour for the 20-year life of the project. The company expects the credits will add up to about $30 per block per year. We're excited about the reliability solar projects like this bring to the energy grid and customers by further diversifying our generation fleet with low-cost, clean energy as we continue to serve customers and build stronger communities, said a statement from Mayuri Farlinger, Vice President of Customer and Community Engagement at Alliant. The Solar Garden is north of the 1100 block of 33rd Avenue Southwest on Alliant-owned property in Cedar Rapids. The company began construction on the project in 2021 and announced it to the public in July 2022. Although all the blocks have been taken, interested Alliant customers in Iowa can join a waitlist if any become available or if the company starts another project in the state. CR man gets 25 years for sexually abusing 11-year-old. Prosecutor. He lived in the same building as the girl and groomed her. By Trish Mahaffey. A teenage girl told a judge Tuesday she was trying to get past the pain and trauma she endured for months of being sexually abused by Brian Brady Ruiz. The teen, looking down and speaking softly and barely audible in the courtroom, said she had nightmares and night sweats for the past four years. She now is living in foster care and has seen a lot of therapists. I have trust issues. Judicial District Judge Kevin McKeever sentenced Ruiz, 28, of Cedar Rapids, who pleaded in October to second-degree sexual abuse, to 25 years in prison with a mandatory 17 years to be served before being eligible for parole. Ruiz also was ordered to serve a special sentence of parole and comply with the requirements of the sex offender registry for the rest of his life. McKeever also put in place a no-contact order to protect the victim for five years. The other charges against Ruiz, one count of second-degree sexual abuse and citing a child, enticing a child under, under age 13 for sexual abuse or exploitation, lascivious acts with a child, indecent exposure, and dissemination and exhibition of obscene material to a minor were dismissed as part of the plea agreement. At some point, Ruiz's attention switched to focus on the girl's nine-year-old sibling. He asked the girl to help him have a relationship with Hearst, Monica Slaughter said. The victim's trauma also made her vulnerable to Ruiz's brother, Marcus Clyde Ruiz, 29, who also sexually abused her in 2022. He was convicted in August. Slaughter said the child did everything she was supposed to do. She reported the abuse, went through a forensic interview and a physical exam, and provided a deposition. Ruiz then filed a lawsuit against the child, claiming she was lying, but he was unable to intimidate her, Slaughter said. Instead, he feared the child, what she was going to say. He made the plea deal just before this trial was set to start, Slaughter said. He made an Alfred plea in which a defendant does not admit guilt, but concedes the prosecution has enough evidence to, pro to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, which shows how little remorse he has for the amount of damage he caused to the child, Slaughter said. Ruiz declined to make a statement during the sentencing. Democrats walk out of meeting on elections bill. Bill would ban ballot boxes, protect Trump from challenges, by Caleb McCullough. A fiery exchange prompted Iowa House Democrats to walk out Tuesday of a House subcommittee meeting on a bill to make changes to the state's election procedures and limit eligibility challenges for federal candidates, including to Donald Trump. Republicans advanced House Study Bill 697 out of the subcommittee, saying it continues to make Iowa a place of election integrity. Democratic Representative Amy Nielsen of North Liberty walked out after questioning Representative Bobby Kaufman, Republican of Wilton, who led the subcommittee meeting. 
After a heated exchange between the two, Nielsen told Kaufman to stop interrupting me. This is my subcommittee, and I'll refer to whoever I want to refer to whenever I want to refer to them, Kaufman said. You don't run this meeting, Representative Nielsen. Shortly after, Nielsen walked out, followed by Representative Adam Zabner of Iowa City, the other Democrat on the five-member panel. I think it was made pretty clear that what I had to say was not well-received, did not want to be heard, Nielsen said after the meeting. If I can't be heard, why am I here? Kaufman said the House State Government Committee will consider the bill today ahead of a key legislative deadline for bills to remain active in the session. It would do the following. Limit challenges of petitions of federal candidates to the, to the legal sufficiency of the petition or the residency, age, or citizenship requirements of the candidate. Require that absentee ballots be received by a county auditor's office the day before the election and allow the auditor to begin mailing absentee ballots two days earlier. Change the rules for how absentee ballots need to be mailed and received by county auditors. Create a pilot program for a third party to maintain Iowa's voter database. Ban ranked choice voting. Ban the use of ballot drop boxes in the state. They are treating this bill very unseriously, and we're going to do what we can, Kaufman said after the meeting of the, de after the, meeting of the Democrat walkout. And their actions speak for themselves. If they can't stay in the room like an adult and have a conversation, then good riddance. A companion bill, Senate Study Bill 3161, was passed Monday out of a Senate subcommittee by Republican Senators Jason Schultz of Schleswig and Don Driscoll of Williamsburg. Democratic Senator Janice Weiner of Iowa City did not vote to advance, to advance the bill. The limit on eligibility challenges would make it impossible for individuals to lodge challenges to former President Trump's place on the presidential election ballot on the grounds that he incited an insurrection in violation of the 14th Amendment of the Constitution, as groups in other states have done. The bill would move the deadline for county auditors to receive absentee ballots to the close of business one day before the election. Currently, ballots can be received until the end of the day on Election Day. Auditors would be able to begin mailing out absentee ballots two days earlier to compensate for the earlier deadline. The bill requires that the voter ID number, either the voter's driver's license number or the number on a state-provided voter ID card that is placed on the absentee ballot affidavit, match the number on file for the voter. It would remove a county auditor's ability to disqualify a ballot if it appears the signature on the ballot does not match the signature on file. The bill also would require that auditors use at least three and sometimes four envelopes for different documents when mailing out absentee ballots. The bill would authorize a pilot program for a third party to maintain Iowa's voter rolls. Until last year, Iowa was enrolled in the Electronic Registration Information Center, a nonpartisan multi-state organization that maintains voter rolls. Several GOP-led states left the group last year because of concerns over the group's privacy and registration activities, as well as conspiracy theories fueled by far-right media. Under the bill, the state would use the third-party vendor to verify the state's voter database in early 2025. After that, the state would evaluate the new process and could continue with the new vendor. The bill would also ban ranked choice voting in Iowa. Ranked choice voting is a process by which voters rank multiple candidates for a single office based on their preference. If a candidate does not receive more than 50% on the first round of voting, the least popular candidate is eliminated and his or her voters are reassigned to their second choice. The process continues until someone reaches 50% of the votes. The method is used in some local elections across the country and in some statewide elections in Maine and Alaska. Iowa lawmakers moved to cap insulin costs at $75 a month. Uninsured Iowans would not be covered by the proposed bill by Caleb McCullough. 
Iowa lawmakers are considering a bill to limit out-of-pocket costs for insulin at $75 a month. Lawmakers advanced the bill out of a Senate subcommittee on Monday, saying they hoped it would increase access to the diabetes drug. Insulin is used to treat high blood sugar in people with both type 1 and type 2 diabetes. The bill would apply to people on state-regulated health insurance plans, including people with private health insurance and state-provided Medicaid. Uninsured Iowans would not be covered by the bill. Senator Kerry Kolker, a Republican from Dyersville who proposed the bill, Senate File 2214, said it had been in the works for at least six years, and she hopes this could be the year it becomes law. It may not be enough, but if it saves one life, it should not be at the expense of the cost of insulin, she said during the committee meeting. So I'm happy to sign this out and continue the conversation. Senator Sarah Trone-Garriott, a Democrat from Waukee, said she supported taking action to cap insulin costs, but she was curious whether the bill would leave out anyone who needed the medication. I'm interested to learn more about are there other consumers, other Iowans, who might not be positively impacted by this bill, she said. Are there folks who are underinsured or not insured? Proposal to require registration of ghost guns in Iowa next by the Gazette Lee Des Moines Bureau. An Iowa House committee leader nixed a proposal from Democrats to require registration of so-called ghost guns that are manufactured by individuals from parts and assembly kits. The bill would require that guns manufactured by an individual be given a unique serial number by the Department of Public Safety. Any unfinished gun frame or lower receiver would also need to be given a serial number before being sold or transferred. It would also make it a crime to remove the serial number from a firearm. Republican Phil Thompson of Boone, the chair of the House Public Safety Committee, declined to advance House File 488 out of a House subcommittee on Tuesday, saying it would not prevent crime and would overregulate gun owners. You are listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Wednesday, February 14, 2024, on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now let's turn to today's obituaries. Shirley Ann Libert, 84, of Cedar Rapids, died Monday, February 12th at the Oldorf Hospice House of Mercy. Services 11 a.m. Friday, February 16th at Tea and Funeral Home by, Rep- by Reverend Trish Decker. Burial, Mount Calvary. Friends may visit with the family on Thursday, February 15th from 4 p.m. to 7 p.m. and after 10 a.m. on Friday at Tea and Funeral Home. Please dress casually for the visitation and service. Shirley's full obituary may be viewed at teaandfuneralhome.com. Viola Clara Churgi, 87, of Cedar Rapids, passed away peacefully with her family by her side on Sunday, February 11th at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics in Iowa City. The family will greet friends from 4 to 7 p.m. on Thursday, February 15th at Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Marion. A funeral mass will be held at 11 a.m. on Friday, February 16th at St. Elizabeth Ann Seton Catholic Church in Hiawatha with an additional visitation beginning at 10 a.m. Inurnment will take place at a later date at St. Joseph Cemetery in Elkader. Viola was born on April 22, 1936 in Guttenberg, the daughter of Aloysius and Silveria Harder-Gedkin. She was a graduate of Lamont High School in Lamont, Iowa. In 1957, she was united in marriage to Carl Albert Churgi at St. Mary's Catholic Church in Lamont. He died in July of 2000. Viola was a loving mother to three daughters, Patty, Barb, and Jean, She truly enjoyed being involved in her daughter's lives. She was a leader and heavily involved in Brownies, Girl Scouts, and 4-H with her three girls. She taught her daughters to sew, cook, and other life skills. She also enjoyed cards, knitting, crocheting, reading, making crafts for St. Joseph's Catholic Church and Al-Qaeda Crafters Group, socializing with her many friends, and seeing her grandkids and great-grandkids. 
please share a memory of Viola at MurdochFuneralHome.com. Sheila King, 57, of Marion, passed away Sunday, February 11th after a courageous four-plus-year battle with stage 4 colon cancer. A visitation will be held on Friday, February 16th from 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. at the Cedar Memorial Chapel of Memory State Room. A memorial mass will take place on Saturday, February 17th and begin at 10.30 a.m. at St. Joseph Catholic Church in Marion. Immediately following the memorial mass, the family will host a gathering of friends and family to celebrate Sheila's life at Kingston Steakhouse venue and event space until 2.30 p.m. Sheila was born in Indiana, attended undergrad at University of Southern Indiana, and obtained her master's degree at Bowling Green State University in Ohio, where she and Rich met. Her first job was with the Ohio State University Mansfield campus as Director of Student Activities. Her next role brought her to Iowa at the University of Iowa as Director of Student Activities. She then went on to work at McLeod USA for a number of years, where Rich and Sheila had an opportunity to move around the country. Rich and Sheila eventually made it back to Iowa, where she then pursued a career in real estate starting in early 2010. She loved being a Skogman realtor, took great pride in her work, and especially loved helping people. Sheila served as past board president of the Cedar Rapids Area Association of Realtors and was recently honored as Realtor of the Year for 2023. Online condolences may be directed to the family at cedarmemorial.com. Virginia Bell Wilson Ross, 93, of Marion, passed away on February 11th. She was born in Sibula, Iowa on January 17, 1931, to Edwin and Edith Papke Robinson. Virginia attended Sibula High School, where soon after graduation, she met and married her first husband and father of her three children, Robert Bob Wilson, who passed away in March of 1982. She later married Alan Ross in 1991. She worked for Collins Radio after working in the White Room Lab, making circuit breakers for Apollo 11 in 1969 until her retirement. Some of her interests included gardening, sewing, quilting, dancing, baking, and reading. She especially loved to travel with Alan, which included trips to Europe, cruises, and RVing all over the states. Jenny loved the Cubs and cheered for the Hawkeyes and the Cyclones. Service will be held at Marion Methodist Church in Marion on February 15th at 12 p.m. Visitation will be held prior, beginning at 11 a.m. There will be a luncheon following services at the church. Jenny will be inurned with Bob at Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery at a later date. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be directed to Marion Methodist Church. Online condolences may be left at cedarmemorial.com. James Charles Chakel, 89, passed away on Monday, February 5th. A resident of Belle Plaine, Iowa, James was born on February 14, 1934, to James Chakel and Ella Bazin. James obtained an associate's degree through the Air Force. From January 1954 to February 1974, he worked on ground support equipment that maintained aircraft. He also owned and operated Jim's Appliance until his retirement. Some of his greatest hobbies included hunting, fishing, woodworking, camping, and riding his motorcycle. He was a member of the Legion, NRA, Optimist Club, NCO, Non-Commissioned Officer Club, and affiliated with the Methodist Church in Belle Plaine. In 1959, he married Margaret Louise Brosh in Blairstown. Together, they had one child. Services will take place at the Belle Plaine Legion at a later date. Condolences may be left online at iowacremation.com. Donald Ray Coonrod Cooney, 59, of Springville, passed away Monday, February 12th at the University of Iowa Hospital in Iowa City. A memorial service will be held at 11 a.m. on Saturday, February 17th 
at Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Marion, with visitation one hour prior. Burial will follow at the Springville Cemetery. Reception at Sally's on Broadway in Springville to follow. Cooney was born on May 21, 1964, in Cedar Rapids, the son of Donald and Barbara Sokup Coonrod. He was a 1982 graduate of Springville High School. He had a passion for farming and mechanics. He also had two grandchildren that were his pride and joy. Memorials in Cooney's memory may be directed to the family. Please share a memory at MurdochFuneralHome.com. Professor Emeritus Douglas Kent Madsen, age 85, of Iowa City, died peacefully on February 8th at UIHC. Doug was born in Spokane, Washington, on November 5, 1938, the third child of Louise, née MacArthur, and Arthur L. Madsen. After graduating from Lewis and Clark High School in Spokane, Doug attended Stanford University, where he was a history major, a member of Alpha Tau Omega fraternity, and a midshipman in the Navy ROTC program. Following college graduation, he was commissioned as an ensign and served on an aircraft carrier, the USS Hancock, from 1961 to 1963. While still a midshipman on a summer training cruise, he met Joanne Springston in Seattle. They later married on January 30, 1963. After an honorable discharge from the USN, Doug became an administrator in the Stanford University Financial Aid Office. He soon decided to enter graduate school and earned a PhD in political science from UCLA. In 1971, Doug joined the Department of Political Science at the University of Iowa, where he was a faculty member for almost 40 years, including taking a turn as chair of the department. He enjoyed teaching and mentoring and was the recipient of a, coll a collegiate teaching award. Sean William Michael Keeger of Cedar Rapids, 1992 to 2023, was born in the South. At the age of seven, his mother entered him into the foster care system. He attended many schools in Iowa and later earned his GED. Sean was goal-oriented on earning his bachelor's in business, which he was working towards. On May 1, 2023, Sean drove two hours to his girlfriend's work to propose because he couldn't wait to put a ring on her finger. On June 1, 2023, they found out they were expecting. Sean and his fiancée planned for a destination wedding in fall of 2024. What he wanted most was a family of his own. Sean was beyond excited to be a dad in early 2024 to his son. He enjoyed fishing, grilling, watching sports, and hanging out with his family. He leaves behind a small group of close friends who were like brothers, his sister, brother-in-law, fiancé, and newborn son from Cedar Rapids. His last wish was to be cremated and be at home with, his, with the family he created. Captain Ronald Ron Jean Whitaker, 60, 86, of Iowa City, died on Sunday, February 11th at Legacy Point Assisted Living, surrounded by his family. Massive Christian burial will be at 10.30 a.m. on Saturday, February 17th at St. Patrick Catholic Church, Iowa City, with Father Troy Richmond offici officiating. Burial will follow lunch at St. Joseph Cemetery, Iowa City. Prior to the service, family will greet friends 9.30 to 10.30 a.m. at the church. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be directed to St. Patrick Catholic Church or the Iowa City Fire Department. A full obituary may be viewed and online condolences made at lensingfuneral.com. Mary Beth Spencer Payne, 53, of Lisbon, passed away on Thursday, February 8th after a short battle from amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, or ALS. There will be a celebration of life for Mary Beth on Saturday, February 24th from 11 to 2 p.m., 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. at the Tin Roof in Lisbon. Instead of any flowers or donations, the family asks that all proceeds be donated to the Astla Foundation 
to support other families that are going through similar situations. There will be a benefit in her honor on April 6, 2024, from 1 to 5 p.m., also at the Tin Roof. There will be a silent auction and gathering. Proceeds will go to the family. Please share your support and memories with Mary Beth's family on her tribute wall at StuartBaxter.com. James Dusty Leo Rhodes, 86, of Walker, passed away Monday, February 12th. A visitation will be held from 10 to 11 a.m. on Saturday, February 17th at Anchor Bible Church in Center Point. Celebration of Life will follow the visitation beginning at 11 a.m. Dusty was born on March 26, 1937, to Charles and Gaitha Martin Rhodes in Walsh, Colorado. After high school, he enlisted in the National Guard. He married Jane Brown on December 31, 1956, in Green City, Missouri. He gave over 28 years of service to Link Belt FMC. He was a longtime member of Anchor Bible Church. Dusty was a jack-of-all-trades. He had a great sense of humor that earned him the title of jokester in the family. Dusty loved to help, and with his guidance and patience, he could solve any problem. Most importantly, he loved his family and cherished the time he spent with them. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be directed to the Anchor Bible Church Building Fund in Center Point. Online condolences may be directed to the family at iowacremation.com. Casey Downs Gibson, 85, of Denver, Colorado, passed away peacefully on Sunday, January 28th in her residence. Carrie was born in Kerhonkson, Kerhonks, New York, on December 28, 1938, to Donald and Gwen Downs. She attended Oakwood Friends School and Mount Holyoke College. Carrie married Douglas Jack of West Springfield, Massachusetts, and raised two children, Juliet Jack and McAndrew Jack, in the Berkshires of Massachusetts. She worked in media and public relations, including working for local NBC affiliate WWLP in Springfield, Massachusetts, and as director of public relations for Western New England College. Carrie married Terry Gibson in 1987 and moved to Denver, Colorado, where she served as assistant to Dan Ritchie, Chancellor of the University of Denver. Following Denver, Carrie moved with her husband to Tulsa, Oklahoma, where she was active in the arts. Carrie and Terry moved to Cedar Rapids, Iowa, where Carrie continued her work with the arts. She was instrumental in the revival of the Cedar Rapids Symphony as a board member. In Cedar Rapids, Carrie was immersed in and developed a love of Czech culture. She served as the chair of the Board of Trustees of the Czech and Slovak Museum and Library, overseeing the rebuilding and significant expansion of the museum following the Iowa flood of 2008. Carrie also cared deeply about women's issues and empowerment and was active in the Alumni Association of Mount Holyoke and involved in the political campaigns of several female political candidates in Massachusetts, Oklahoma, and Iowa, including her own run for state legislature. Family and friends are invited to sign the online guest book at horincares.com. Wanda Carlene Campbell, 70, of Vinton, formerly of Central City, passed peacefully into eternity in her sleep on Monday, February 12th at the Virginia Gay Nursing and Rehab in Vinton. A private celebration of life will be held later. Wanda will be cremated per her wishes. Inurnment will be at Mount Clark Cemetery in Central City. Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service of Marion is assisting the family. Wanda was the first of four children born to Ronnie and Rosie Davis Campbell on April 20, 1953. She graduated from Central City High School in 1972. Out of high school, she worked for several years at Rockwell Collins until being laid off. Wanda then worked several years at Mercy Hospital in the cafeteria, laundry, and housekeeping departments. Wanda's favorite color was purple. She enjoyed bowling and was in many leagues. Wanda was an avid blood donor and was a member of the Central City United Methodist Church and the Red Hat Society. 
per please share a memory of Wanda at MurdochFuneralHome.com. Mary Rowene Hem Kirkland, 103, formerly of Ottumwa, died February 7, 2024 in Cedar Rapids after a short illness. Rowe was born on October 11, 1920 in Eldon, Iowa to Ansel and Bessie Walker Hem. She graduated from Eldon High School in 1938 and from Iowa Success Business School in Ottumwa, where she met Donald Kirkland. They married on July 12, 1941. Don passed away in 2006. Rowe has lived in Eldon, Ottumwa, Fairfield, and Cedar Rapids, Iowa, Arkansas City, Kansas, San Antonio, Texas, and recently Hot Springs and Malvern, Arkansas. She was a member of Eldon Christian Church. She worked as a secretary at John Morrell Company, Ottumwa First Christian Church, and Watson Clinic in Fairfield. Memorials may be sent to a charity of your choice, Eldon Christian Church in Eldon, Iowa, or the Animal Rescue League of Iowa in Des Moines marked for Therapets program in support of the therapy dogs Roe enjoyed. A reception and service will be held in Ottumwa in June, followed by burial of cremains in Shaw Cemetery. Sandra Sandy Byers, 73, of Monticello, died Saturday, February 10th at Monticello Nursing and Rehabilitation. A massive Christian burial will take place at, 10, at 11 a.m. Monday, February 19th at Sacred Heart Catholic Church in Monticello. Reverend Paul Baldwin will officiate. Burial will be in Sacred Heart Cemetery, Monticello. Friends may call from 4 to 7 p.m. Sunday, February 18th at the Getch Funeral Home in Monticello, where a parish vigil service will begin at 4 p.m. Please visit GetchOnline.com to share your thoughts, memories, and condolences with Sandy's family. Sandra Jean Schaefer was born on June 2, 1950 at the Old John McDonald Hospital in Monticello. The daughter of Lewis and Dorothy Laban Schaefer, she attended school in Monticello and graduated from Monticello High School in the class of 1968. She met Jan Byers at a teen hop and the two would later unite in marriage at Wayne Zion Lutheran Church on August 30, 1968. She was employed as a bookkeeper and secretary at Franklin Manufacturing in Monticello, leaving in 1999 to serve in the same capacity at the Iowa Department of Transportation. She retired in 2015. That concludes today's obituaries. Moving on to today's editorial page, there is one letter to the editor today. It is from Ted Wernemont of Coralville. The headline is, of all, conservative, of all conservatives, why print Cal Thomas? I truly respect the Gazette and feel they give several conservative columnists and many letter writers frequent space to voice conservative opinions. But I'm not sure if they keep Cal Thomas front and center as a covert reinforcement of just how out of touch with reality the Christian right really is. Or maybe Cal is a bargain these days to print his stuff. God knows, no pun intended, I am sorely lacking as a biblical scholar. But his recent column criticizing President Joe Biden and other presidents on their attempts to link isolated biblical quotes with efforts to mostly make politics work better was a bit silly. In my opinion, it is a great example of the Christian mystery of how to ra rationalize literal interpretation of God's word with the fact all original language and writing was in Aramaic, followed by centuries of untold numbers of translations, interpretations, and frankly, biased editing. Cal's immature nitpicking of misquoted verses from, of course, his personal Bible, is a slap in the face to the good religious folks out there who support women's right to health care and humane immigration laws, separation of public and private education, condemn the attacks on LGBTQ youth, in other words, who walk the real walk of Christianity 101 and do unto others. Again, that is a letter in today's Gazette from Ted Wernemont of Coralville. Here is a column by Bruce Lear. It is titled, It's Another Attack on Ideas. 
Small Iowa towns have a few things in common. They have a gas station, a bar, a church, and a town library. Almost all of Iowa's 500 public libraries are governed by a board of trustees. Library trustees make policy and oversee the collection. They are volunteer boards that function independently but are appointed by city councils. That all could change if House Study Bill 678 becomes law. This bill allows city councils to override decisions made by library boards and would strike down ordinances which require voter approval before changing the governance of public libraries. In an October article about Pella attempting to get voter approval for the changes outlined in this bill, I predicted during the next legislative session, GOP lawmakers may use this local controversy to go a step further by forcing this change statewide and destroying library board local control. On November 7th, Pella citizens were asked to change the governance of their library. A few citizens were angry the adult section of the library had Gender Queer, a memoir by Maya Kobabi, available. I spent four years in Pella before graduating from Central College. It's a beautiful community, and Central College is a wonderful small college. It's conservative. Pella is a small town with about 30 churches. In the 1970s, the only business open on Sunday was George's Pizza. George defied unwritten rules. When, those, when these conservative voters were asked to allow city council governance of the library instead of a board of trustees, 51% voted no. Even in a town with bedrock conservative values, voter re voters recognized this change was a bad idea. This is really another attempt to control ideas Republicans don't like. It's a sequel to Senate File 469 passed last year with only Republican votes that says school libraries and classrooms may only contain age-appropriate materials and further says age-appropriate does not include any material with descriptions or visual depictions of a sex act. The author of the age-appropriate amendment was Senator Ken Rosenboom, who represents Pella. On December 29th, District Judge Stephen Loker issued an injunction on the enforcement of this portion of Senate File 496, saying it was incredibly broad and unlikely to satisfy the First Amendment under any standard of scrutiny. The majority party once preached small government and should let this bill die. HSB 678 is a backdoor attempt to regulate ideas by making the governance of libraries political. It's government overreach at its worst. Libraries should be a repository of many ideas, even ideas rejected by partisan politicians of either party. City councils are busy with city streets, sewers, and building codes. They don't have time nor inclination to rule libraries. Library trustees are appointed by the city council, so elected officials do have a say on who governs the library. The legislature should be focused on real problems like hunger, mental health concerns, and affordable health care. Leave public libraries alone. Bruce Lear lives in Sioux City, taught for 11 years, and represented educators as an Iowa State Education Association regional director for 27 years until retiring. He plans to drop five-day COVID isolation guidelines by the Washington Post. Americans who test positive for the coronavirus no longer need to routinely stay home from work and school for five days under new guidance planned by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The agency is loosing its COVID isolation recommendations for the first time since 2021 to align it with guidance on how to avoid transmitting flu and RSV, according to four agency officials and an expert familiar with the discussions. CDC officials acknowledged in internal discussions and in a briefing last week with state health officials how much the COVID-19 landscape has changed since the virus emerged four years ago, killing nearly 1.2 million people in the United States and shuttering businesses and schools. 
The new reality, with most people having developed a level of immunity to the virus because of prior infection or vaccination, warrants a shift to a more practical approach, experts and health officials say. Public health has to be realistic, said Michael T. Osterholm, an infectious disease expert at the University of Minnesota. In making recommendations to the public today, we have to try to get the most out of what people are willing to do. You can be absolutely right in the science and yet accomplish nothing because no one will listen to you. The CDC plans to recommend that people who test positive for the coronavirus use clinical symptoms to determine when to end isolation. Under the new approach, people would no longer need to stay home if they have been fever-free for at least 24 hours without the aid of medication, and their symptoms are mild and improving, according to three agency officials who spoke on the condition of anonymity to share internal discussions. The federal recommendations follow similar moves by Oregon and California. The White House has yet to sign off on the guidance that the agency is expected to release in April for public feedback, officials said. One agency official said the timing could move around a bit until the guidance is finalized. Officials said they recognized the need to give the public more practical guidelines for COVID-19, acknowledging that few people are following isolation guidance that hasn't been updated since December 2021. In sports news, the Iowa Boys State Wrestling Tournament starts today. Here's the information about where you can watch the matches. It's today through Saturday at Wells Fargo Arena in Des Moines. Today's schedule, 9 a.m. to 12.30 p.m., Class 2A, first and second rounds, and first round consolations. 1.30 to 5 p.m., Class 3A, first and second rounds, and first round consolations. 6 to 9.30 p.m., Class 1A, first and second round, and first round consolations. Video streaming for the semifinals and finals is available at IHSSN.com and watch IHSSN app. Semifinals televised on IHSSN cable network, which includes Mediacom Channel 22, and finals on IHSSN broadcast network, which includes KFXA 28.1. All matches are available at www.flowwrestling.com with a subscription. Tickets are $12 for sessions 1 to 10, all seating general admission, $15 for lower level, $12 for upper level for the finals. And that does it for today's reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Wednesday, February 14th, 2024. I'm your reader, Janet Griffith. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thanks for listening, and happy Valentine's Day.
In Africa, five-year-old Cheru has no choice. She and millions like her must walk miles every day for dirty water. But together, we can end their walk by providing clean water close by. Instead of spending hours walking to get water that makes them sick, girls can be in a classroom that expands their minds and moms will gain back time to care for their families. Sons and daughters can grow up strong, finally free of sicknesses caused by dirty water. At World Vision, care about clean water runs deep. Deep enough to reach one new person with clean water every 10 seconds. Because every child, every person, everywhere deserves clean water and the chance to rise to their full potential. It's true. When you just add water, you change a life. Learn more at worldvision.org.